Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. Welcome to episode 100. 100. We did it. We got to 100. <laughs> That's amazing. I know. Congratulations I can't to it. you, Jen. Congratulations to you. I, You know what I was thinking about? Sally and I are having dinner tonight. We were going to celebrate uh, my last day of my job, but we're actually going to also celebrate our 100th episode together. I know. That's so exciting. I can't wait. To have dinner with you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to get done with this dumb episode so we can eat and drink. <laughs> no, we're going to have fun on this episode. It's going to be a good episode. Also, it's 9.30 in the morning, so. <laughs> yeah, we've got a long way to go. You guys, thanks for hanging in with us for 100 episodes. Um, I wish we could take you all out to dinner tonight. Oh, tell you where we're going to be. Buena Vida Tapa 615 patio. We'll see you there. Yeah, we're at the Raiden at the grandma hour. Yeah, if you can somehow travel back in time and meet us at 615 at Buena Vida Tapas <laughs> on the patio, <laughs> we will pay for all of your meals. Yeah, we'll, we'll buy you like the the most expensive bottle of champagne. Yes, because you deserve it. You deserve it. We all yeah. deserve it. Yes. Um, man, yeah, today is a big day. Today is my last day at my old job and then I'm Congratulations. Monday, a new job and we are doing our 100th episode. I woke up this morning um, feeling good. I had yeah. a pep in my step. Yeah. I was ready to like go out for a run, walk, run and um, <laughs> take the, the day by the horns. Yeah. And um, but I was like, I rolled out of bed. I had a show last night, so I didn't really get much sleep. So I rolled out of bed and I didn't even put my hair in a ponytail. I was still like matted and gross, but I was like, fuck it. Who's gonna see me? Right. And then I put on some like, you know, workout clothes and my t-shirt with a thousand holes in it. But I was uh-huh. like, fuck it. Who's gonna see me? Yeah. And then I it was cold, so I put on a little jacket huge stain, coffee stain all down the front of it. <laughs> Fuck it. Who's going to see me? This is my last day of my last job. Right. I'm no getting one's... out there. I'm just getting, I'm rolling out. I'm starting yeah. my day off. No one's going to, uh-huh. no one's going to stop me. Uh-huh. So I get like halfway through my run and I run right into my brand new boss. No! <laughs> It was the kind of run into that there's no way that I couldn't say hi. You yeah. know what I mean? And it was just like he would fire me for being right. rude. <laughs> so I had to say hi. And I was like, oh, my God, hey, like, sorry, I look so disgusting right now. But and he was like, that's fine. <laughs> it was really, really, really nice. But we yeah. ended up having like a 20-minute conversation. Oh, on the like side. the whole time you're just like, do you see this coffee stain? Like, please don't like look at me. 
You know that kind of when you know you look like such shit, so you just like shitty grin from ear to ear because maybe the smile will cover it all. (laughs) (laughs) But not too big of a smile because I haven't yet brushed my teeth, but I did have coffee. (laughs) So stand up downwind so that he can't smell my breath. Oh my God. It was just like the timing of it all was just perfect. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Oh, that's the, Of all people I run yeah. into my brand new boss on the belt line looking like a hobo. And he probably was like, wait, because he's only probably ever seen you like totally professional done up because you've only been there for interviews. And, and with now- the mask on. <laughs> and so he was probably on. like, who is this homeless person? <laughs> Coming up to me like, hey! Yeah. Hey! Can we start on Monday? Pew, 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 pew. Finger guns. Um, Yeah. Yeah. This is what I'm showing up like on Monday. Can't wait to get some deals done and do some business. This is Jen. This is Jen. This is how I do. My shirt came with air conditioning. Um, (laughs) I uh, yeah, I just thought it was like, of course, that's the that's the kind of shit that happens uh, in my world. My God, that's so perfect. It's so perfect. It really was in a way that almost made me be like, yeah, I'm on the right track. You know what I mean? Just like the serendip. It's like serendip. I'm embarrassed, but the serendipity, yeah, of it made me be like. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> and like, you know Let's what? Let's do this. He's now seen you. At my worst. He's seen you at your worst. So like, <laughs> it can only go up from here. Like exactly. That's, it's like, now you don't have to pretend anymore that mm-hmm. you look perfect every day. Yeah. No, you do. You look perfect no, every day. No, I don't. Every time I've ever seen you, perfect. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, man. Um, I had yeah. a run-in. I met a listener. Yeah? Yeah. And she was we have so... A, we have one of them? We have a listener <laughs> who I didn't previously know. Um, so our friend Marshall, right, who owns The Laughing Skull. Yes. I was doing a show out um, at the Omni and he was like, oh my God, did I tell you about one of my friends who came up to me and was like, do you know Sally Brooks and Jack Neal Smith? <laughs> he was like, yeah. So, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so his a, a friend, like they were like friends through their kids. Her name's Jeannie. And he was like, would you call her? It would totally make her day. And I was like, really? Do you think she cares if I call? But so I called her from Marshall's phone and uh-huh. she was so lovely to talk to. Uh-huh. She was so fun. She was telling, she like gave me, gave us the best compliment of just like, you guys have something special. Please don't quit. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like, because we weren't thinking about it. <laughs> we weren't thinking about <laughs> it. I'm kidding. We're not going to quit. We're going to um, take a little break after this 100th episode just we're to, to take give a ourselves break. a breather. But we're coming back. Yes, we're coming back. But so, yeah. So, but it was just so lovely. And then, and then she ended up, like, turns out she lives like five minutes from there. So she and her husband, she was like out. She had like just worked out. And then she was like, let's go. So she like got dressed real quick and then came to the show. And she was kind of like, I'm sorry, this is like my workout hair. I'm like, you're adorable. Like you look perfect. And, uh, and so she was so nice. She like got there right for my set. It was, we taught, we like chatted afterwards. She was awesome. Her husband was great. And then the show was over. And so people were like walking out and she was like, "Uh, I got to go get my purse. And she walked in and her purse was 
gone <gasps> from no. the showroom. And I was like, oh, no, this is my fault somehow. <laughs> it definitely wasn't oh, worth it. Because she came to see you. Because <laughs> she came to see me. And then we were, like, chatting outside. Like, Did so, you steal her purse? Out. Yeah, I I lured her there just to steal her purse. <laughs> that's, a, that's our long con. Our long con. We've done 100 episodes just to get you guys out to meet us so we can steal your shit. I mean, it's the word we've never, we've never said we were the best thieves. So it turns out someone, which I think is so crazy, in the middle of the show was like, oh, this, somebody left their purse and then took it to the bar and was oh. like, in case somebody comes back for it. But it was like, she obviously like came in, sat down, and then walked out. I don't know if they were just like, I guess she's not coming back. So Weird. it ended up with she found it. It was there, thank God, thank God. I know. I was like, I'm, I'm gonna feel really responsible for this, and like, Ugh. I know my to buy her a new purse and replace all of her makeup. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, but it was so nice to meet you, Jeannie. I really, she, I really, uh, I really like talking to her. She was like, I listened, I have like my, a thing in the shower. She's like, so I always listen to you guys in the shower. She's like, so it's like you guys are in the shower with me every Monday. Nice. <laughs> so happy shower. Happy shower. Jeannie. Well, I want to meet Jeannie. Mm-hmm. How come you get to meet Jeannie? I want to meet Jeannie. Uh, she said she didn't really care for you that much. Um, okay. So. Well, Jeannie, if you can travel back in time, we will be at Buena Vida's Tapas on the Beltline at 6.15 tonight. Come on out. We'll buy you a drink. <laughs> we'll buy you a drink. <laughs> All right. Should we get into our quickies? Let's do it. Okay. I'm going to start the quickies this episode. Do it. This quickie comes from an article for people.com written by Jason Dwayne Hahn. Now, okay. I want to preface this by telling you that this is about bowling, but okay. it's about <laughs> – more than bowling. John Hinkle Sr. was an avid bowler. He loved to bowl so much that his kids grew up around it all the time. In fact, his kids said that there were so many nights growing up when they would sleep in bowling alleys while their parents were finishing up their league night. Oh. <laughs> so it was a family yeah. affair. And he loved bowling and he was very, very good at it, but he never quite could get that perfect score. Like, I guess 300 is a perfect score. And um, so he would get 298, 299, but he never bowled that 300 perfect score. And sadly, in 2016, John Hinckley Sr. passed away. But his son, John Hinckle Jr., I guess, decided to, you know, wanted to memorialize his father somehow. So he tr- he wanted, he got the idea that he wanted to put his father's ashes inside his bowling ball. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, um, but apparently it, like, nobody would do it. He, like, it took him years before he found someone who was willing to put the ashes inside the ball. Yeah. And apparently he's a two-handed bowler. I'm learning a lot about bowling. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, he's a two-handed <clears throat> bowler. So there's no thumb hole. Okay. He put his father's ashes inside the thumb hole, and then he just has the two holes and, and closed up. Well, the first night when he took the bowling ball out to take it for a whirl, he um, said, I was talking to my brother and told him, I'm shooting a 300 with this ball. And his brother Joe said, do it. 
And one <laughs> I dare you. by one by one, he just kept getting strike after strike after strike. And he said, I had tears in my eyes in the 11th and 12th frames. I couldn't tell you where the last ball went. I had so many tears just throwing it. And in that game, he threw his very first and his father's first perfect score. That's amazing. Isn't that so cool? That's so um, cool. He said he was just there. This is the best 300 game and definitely the hardest. I was shaking, he said. So I just thought that that was like just so cool and just another one of those stories where it's just like you can't deny that there's something special yeah. up there in the universe. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just can only imagine how – connected he felt to his dad in that moment that's so cool yeah and you could watch him bowling this game on um so you go on people.com and look up this article and then there's a link to a youtube video of him Uh bowling this perfect score it's pretty amazing that's awesome i love that look at me doing like a nice good feel good quickie good well because i'm not Okay, so my quickie comes from uh, your favorite, Jen, Click Orlando mm-hmm. um, by Lauren Korn and the Sacramento Bee, which they had. The reason I, I actually clicked on this was because it had my favorite headline ever. And the headline is, Florida duo, one in a bull costume, try to burn down a home with ragu, cops say. <laughs> <laughs> Smells like meth. <laughs> Looks like meth. Smells like meth. I don't know if there was meth in this one. Sounds but... like meth. A bull costume and people trying to kill each other with ragu. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay, I have to hear the story. Okay, obviously. so uh, a Florida man who's not named. He a Florida man. A there, Florida is there man. a podcast called the Florida Man? I there has because, to be right. Yeah, we'll Google it. If there's not, somebody start it. Somebody we'll started. kick we don't start you. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll feature you on our podcast. Yeah. Um, okay, so a Florida man received an alert on his phone while he was at work that his security cameras had detected motion. So he went. He goes into work at like 2 in the morning, and he had a security camera connected to his iPhone. And so he looks at the video, and he could see actually that someone had placed a towel over the camera. So he called 911 because he was like, I think somebody's breaking into my house. So police go to his house and they see a red Lincoln Navigator attempting to leave the area. And so they stop and the driver, who was a 28-year-old named John Silva and his passenger, Derek Irving, told the deputy that they they were like, oh yeah, we were at that guy's house. We just had to pick up some clothes because we actually both are ex-boyfriends of him. And so police were like, well, maybe that's true because Derek Irving was inexplicably wearing a bull costume. (laughs) So they're like, maybe he did need his clothes. (laughs) Um, But when they went to the victim's home, they saw that a vacuum, a window AC unit, a flat screen TV and a heater were missing. Also, the home reeked of smoke when deputies entered it, and there was a pot of spaghetti sauce burning on the stove with a white washcloth placed near the burner that had just begun to catch fire. Oh, my God. 
So what when a circus. Police, I know. So when police look in the car, they see, uh, well, they see a marijuana grinder in the console. Okay. And then they see a vacuum, a window AC unit, a flat screen television, and a heater in the back seat. And then on the passenger seat was an empty jar of ragu spaghetti sauce. Oh, my God. So they were like, obviously, they stole this stuff. They set a pot of spaghetti sauce on the stove with a washcloth in hopes of trying to start a fire to cover up the burglary. And the victim says, he was trying to make it look like I left the stove on, but who gets up at 2 a.m. and fixes Sketty? <laughs> <laughs> some so, people do. So I guess some people do. Yeah, no judgment. So Irving told deputies that he and Silva broke into the home because he was angry about something related to his past relationship with the victim. And the victim told police like he was stunned because he had actually helped Irving financially after the breakup. The victim said, I let him use my car for four months. Maybe he's angry about that. Or maybe he's angry because I gave him $150 to fix his teeth. (laughs) (laughs) So both of the men were charged with unarmed burglary, grand theft, and arson. And then the oh. victim said, I'm from Kentucky. I've never seen anger like that. <laughs> like, oh, really? my God. <laughs> oh, my um, God. I can't imagine those police officers when they went home that night and they were like, their significant others were like, how was your day? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't believe this shit. Oh, my God. Oh, man. I bet Florida cops just have the best stories. Hey, if you're a Florida cop, send us your best weird Florida stories. Yeah. Oh, man. I don't hear any, any weird you stories. You should start a podcast called Florida Man. If you're a Florida cop. <laughs> if you're a Florida cop, <laughs> you start a podcast. Florida Man. <laughs> awesome. I love that. That's a really good last quickie for our 100th episode. Yeah. That's weird there's some um, there's There's some pretty funny pictures of this duo. <laughs> I didn't know none of the bull costume, but they're like, oh, they look, they look like you would hope they look. Tiger Kings. <laughs> awesome. I can't wait to see the pics. Yep. Hey, Sally. Hey, Jen. Are you ready for our 100th craziest story? I'm so excited. Awesome. I'm very excited, too. This is actually um, a local story. This happened right here in Atlanta. Um, Look at us. And I couldn't believe (laughs) that I hadn't heard of it before. So this story came from – my sources were from an article for unsolvedmysteries.fandom, an article for NBC News written by Victoria Corderi, Wikipedia. Oh, I've heard Um, of it. Have you? Do you donate? <laughs> then I don't want to hear it. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, and, um, and then a podcast, a really great podcast called Southern Mysteries, hosted and written and produced by Shannon Ballard. It's really okay. good. Super recommend. So Lita LaVon McClinton was born in Atlanta in 1952. She was the oldest of three children. Her parents were Emery and Joanne McClinton. Her parents were very well-known in 
in Atlanta. Her mother was actually in the Georgia House of Representatives from 1993 to 2006. And her father was a very high ranking official with the U.S. Department of Transportation. So they were um, very prominent, uh, well-respected, very well-off Atlanta family. They were all like socialites. And Lita was just this gorgeous, super intelligent woman. She went to Spelman and she graduated with a degree in political science. Okay. Um, she also was a very sharp dresser. She loved fashion. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, she dressed like to the nines very well. Do you, do you think she For dressed success? kind of like, like you yes. did this morning? This morning? No. <laughs> she would never. She would have never. Lita would have never. So after college, she because she loved fashion so much, she ended up working at a high-end Buckhead boutique when she was 25 years old. And it was there while she was working at the boutique where she met a customer named Jim Sullivan. Now, Jim was this tall, handsome, like super charismatic man. And he was well off because he had actually inherited the um, Crown Beverage Company. Um, oh, and- like Crown Royal? Crown Royal? Yeah. Crown Royal? Um, Crown Royal? <laughs> yes. So in Macon. So the, the beverage company was in Macon and it was his uncle's. And when his uncle passed away, he left it to him. Wow. So, you know, that like – that kind of hard-earned money that he did absolutely nothing for, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's the kind of money it I makes want. like a real well-rounded man. Uh-huh. And so, um, so while- who's always always had everything and then gets everything and then so yeah. feels like they deserve everything. Absolutely, yeah. And so she absolutely loved him though, because he was super, you know, because he was so um, outgoing and and had this charisma about him. I, mm-hmm. I already said he was charismatic, but I'm going to say again. So she really was crazy about him, but her um, her parents were not... Well, first of all, he was 11 years older than her, Uh um, which, you know, which isn't that big of a deal, but at 25, you know, she still has like growing to do and life to live. And, And also her parents... While he was outgoing and had charisma, like I said, her parents kind of just didn't they were like he's full of shit. You know, yeah, I was like gonna say could, one 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 woman's charisma is, a, is, an, is another, another woman's bullshit. bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they always just had this feeling about him that he, you know, he was super arrogant, that he was like a real smooth talker. One other thing that bothered them was that there was um a bit of a racial issue because Lita was African American and Jim was Caucasian. And at uh-huh. that point in 1975, when you know they had met, interracial marriage had only been legal for three years. So it okay. was a big deal back then. Yeah. And it, it, that's so wild to think about that in 1975, interracial marriage was only legal for three years. It, it is crazy. I know. And so yeah. her parents were just concerned about the couple being accepted by society. They just didn't mm-hmm. want their daughter to struggle. But Lita, you know, loved him and they decided to get married on December 29th, 1976. But on the night before their wedding, Jim drops a bombshell on her. He told Lita that he had actually been married before. And he told her that, you know, he assured her, you know, we're divorced, we're divorced. But he told her that the divorce had ruined him financially. So um, he told her that he couldn't let that happen to him again. So that night he takes out a prenup and asks her to sign it. And the so night before like, they're married. Yeah. See, that's Yikes. the thing is I don't care about a prenup 
yeah, great. Protect yourself. But just the like, you waited till the night before the wedding to tell her this information. Yeah, that was like you were you were trapping her essentially. You know what I mean? Because the train's mm-hmm. left the station. You're putting in her in a position. And you know, like, and then you're like, this shouldn't matter to you if you really love me. Then like, yeah, this shouldn't matter. That's like, oh, that's some manipulative <sighs> bullshit. Yeah, dude. And but Lita didn't care about the money because she came from money and she had her right. own money and she didn't, you know, she just loved Jim and wanted to marry him. So she she signed it and they did get married the next day. Mm-hmm. Oh, Lita, poor Lita. Because like, yeah, that's just it's again, it's not about the money, it's just about the manipulation. Right. You know, but anyway, they ended up living together happily in Macon, Georgia for eight years, where his beverage company was. But then in 1983, he decided to sell the company and he made a ton of money off of it. He ended up selling it for $5 million. So I guess he um, wasn't actually ruined financially. Yeah. So he wasn't. He sold it for $5 million and they decided to move to Palm Beach, Florida and buy this huge home on the water and live the glamorous life. The um, glamorous life. Yes. But, um, <clears throat> but Palm Beach back in the early 80s, um, you know, Palm Beach now is like very affluent and, you know, yeah. conservative. But back in the 80s, it was just super white and conservative yeah. and racist, you know uh-huh. what I mean? So uh-huh. they um, unfortunately had trouble fitting into like the high society social circles that they were used to running in. And Jim was like an arrogant asshole. Um, Mm -hmm. And he started to take out his frustrations on Lita and blame her for the reason that they didn't have any friends on her race. And it's like, or maybe it's because you're an asshole. And also maybe it's because the people you're trying to be friends with are also racist. Like, yeah, fuck off. Totally. Jen, I'm starting to feel like maybe he's not the best guy. You know, I don't like him. <clears throat> I'm just really going to let that be said these, right now. I do, do not like Jim Sullivan. Over these hundred episodes, I've learned a thing or two. I've become <laughs> like a really good detective and I'm my spidey sense is telling me. <laughs> when I start calling him fucking asshole <laughs> and arrogant pieces of shit a quarter through the story, they're going to do some shit. They're going to do um, some shit. Yeah, so he treated her like shit, and he treated he cheated on her regularly, and he didn't hide it. You know, he was very brazen about it. Like <sighs> at times, she would find blonde hairs in their bed, and one time she found lingerie in her bed that wasn't hers, Get which out is of so here. fucked up. Yeah, so Lita really, really wanted the marriage to work, and she would go to counseling and try to make it work, but he wouldn't go with her. Yeah. Um, so she tried to make it work, but then when she found out that he was regularly seeing prostitutes is when she was like, all right, that's enough, and she decided to leave him. So she moved back to Georgia into a townhome that they had owned in Buckhead. In 1985, she filed for divorce. And um, okay. the divorce was contentious. What? Um, yeah, Jim was kind of a dick. And so she wanted half of his uh, – she asked for half of his estate and the Buckhead townhome and for um, her Mercedes she wanted to keep as well. And even though she had signed a prenup night before the wedding, because Jim was cheating on her left and right and he didn't hide it at all, she – could probably convince a judge to give her half of 
the estate, right. you know? And yeah, so, there's certain actions that void a prenup Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. He then accused her of cheating, uh-huh. and then he said that she did drugs and stuff, but of, of course he was never able to prove it because I'm sure he was lying. Right. <laughs> um, and so because they couldn't come to an agreement in the divorce, the court ordered a temporary alimony agreement, which would make Jim have to pay for both of their mortgages in Atlanta and Palm Beach, but it was looking like it was going to eventually go in Lita's favor. It was looking like she was going to be able to get half of his $5 million estate. Right. So this was the financial ruin that mm-hmm. he said could never have happened to him again. So on January 15th, 1987, just days before the judge was about to make his final ruling about the uh, in the divorce, Lita was at her townhome in Buckhead and she heard the doorbell ring. And when she went to go answer it, she saw a flower delivery man standing on her porch holding a large box of roses. Mm. And then Lita opened the door and he asked her if she was Lita McClinton. And when she said yes, he opened the box of flowers and took out a nine millimeter gun (gasps) that was hidden under the flowers. And then he shot her twice in the head. Oh my God. Yeah. Mob shit. Uh, Yeah. What's awful is that Lita's best friend, who was also her maid of honor in her wedding, Poppy, was there. She had spent the night with her the night before, along with Poppy's three-year-old daughter. She spent the night with her before, you know, just kind of like best friends talking about Lita's new life that she was going to have. And you can do this. You're strong. And so that morning when she heard the gunshots, she scooped up her daughter and then hid in a closet and then called the police. And so when the police and an ambulance arrived, they rushed Lita to a nearby hospital, but unfortunately they were not able to save her. And um, when her family and friends found out the news, they were absolutely devastated. But both Poppy and her parents and all of her friends knew right away and they told everyone, they all said it, it was Jim Sullivan. It had to have been. Yeah. I mean, the circumstances are just, it's just like- screams Jim Sullivan. So several witnesses in the neighborhood saw three men around the townhome that morning, but none of the descriptions matched Jim Sullivan. But he was able to prove that he was in Palm Beach at the time of the murder because Mm -hmm. his new girlfriend, Suki Rogers, confirmed his alibi. But everyone knew that he had to have something to do with it. Even the police knew it, but it was just all about proving it because he didn't even like try to act sad or surprised when he found out Lita was had been murdered um he he didn't do anything he, he didn't even come to the funeral or send flowers nothing like he was such an arrogant fuck yeah and so because unfortunately they didn't have any solid evidence he remained Free, but they were able to trace some phone calls that were made, and they were able to see that three days before the murder, a phone call was made from an Atlanta Howard Johnson, a hojo, um, a hojo, an Atlanta Howard Johnson hotel to Jim Sullivan's house. And when they checked to see who the hotel room was registered to, it was registered to someone named Johnny Fur. But of course, that soon proved to be an alias. So they weren't able to find anyone by that name, you know, so yeah. they couldn't, you know, find, trace the killer back to Jim. All they could do is trace these phone calls. And then they also saw that on the morning 
of the murder, Jim received a phone call from a rest stop payphone right outside of Atlanta. So again, the FBI, the police, they knew Jim had to be involved. Again, they just needed the proof. So the FBI put a wiretap on his phone. And in February of 1987, they were able to hear Jim talking to a friend about the murder. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just telling them, him, them the details of the murder. And he told his friend that she was killed with a nine millimeter gun. But that evidence had never been made public. Oh, so you dumb dumb, you, you idiot, you stupid dumb idiot. <laughs> so this was incriminating, and it was big. This is huge, but it was not big enough to charge him right. because they didn't have, they still didn't have their shooter. And so Jim was able to just go on with his life. And just eight months after the murder, he married his new girlfriend Suki. Um, Why would you marry that man? And also, why does he want to get married? Why do you want to be married if you just want to, like, sleep with sex workers and, like... She was a socialite. Um, She had been married. uh, She had already been married to um, a prominent person. I can't remember the person's name now, but he was, like, a very wealthy man. And then Mm -hmm. so she had divorced. She was young, though. She was actually 13 years younger than him. Mm-hmm. Also, they said that on the night that Lita was murdered and after Suki, had, he had already been told that Lita was murdered, Suki provided his alibi and that night they went out for a fancy champagne and caviar dinner. Like that fucking night. <sighs> and so- So she sounds cool too. Yeah. So like I said, she was 13 years younger than him. She had money. She was a socialite. and uh, But she, he also liked her because she was very subservient and did whatever he said. In fact, one time when he was um, pulled over for a traffic violation for expired tags, and he convinced her to take the rap and say that it was her that was driving when they would go to court. So he told um, Suki, that because of Lita's death and the investigation that was that they, the police were looking into him, that it could look bad and be in the press if he in trouble for this traffic violation. So he, she agreed, and she went to court on instead of him. He she went to court and and said, "Oh, the cop was wrong." Like when the cop was sitting there in court and said, "The cop was wrong. It was me that was driving." And the judge was like, "Um, bullshit." And then yeah. he charged her. He's like, "So you're saying this police officer is lying, and now you're lying for him." So he, the, the judge charged both her and Jim with perjury on the spot. So then the police go to uh, Jim's home to arrest him for perjury. And when they went home, they found a bunch of unregistered guns in his house. Uh-huh. So he ended up making a deal and he agreed to house arrest for time served. So he was arrested for it, but he... It was house arrest. So, but eventually Suki wised up and decided to leave him. But when she did, she made a point to burn his whole fucking world to the ground. Yeah, Suki. Go, Suki. So she went to the police and she told him that Jim had confessed to her that he hired a hitman to kill Lita. And he t- told her that if she wasn't careful, he would do the same to her. Uh huh. And so Jim, of course, denied it. And um, police, while they know that this is true, they believe Lead, um, Suki and they know, they've know they known that he was involved for this whole time. They're yeah. just afraid that this isn't going to stand up in court because this is just another tumultuous divorce and he said, she said or whatever. Right. But they did arrest him 
And in court, they presented her testimony, the wiretap evidence, and evidence regarding the phone calls that were made um, to his house before and after the murder. Um, and they sh- they were able also able to show that three different men with fake IDs all stayed in the Howard Johnson hotel in Atlanta and that these men are the men that called his home. Okay. They were also able to show that one of these men did go to a local flower shop and seemed like rushed and nervous and bought some flowers. Yeah. Um, And was like, I don't care what kind, just whatever. They were able to confirm that those were the flowers that were found on Lita's doorstep. But even with all that evidence, the judge dismissed the case saying that there was a lack of evidence and fucking Jim walked free once again. Fucking Jim. Fucking Jim sold. And so, but in 1994, Lita's parents were like, fuck that. And they filed a wrongful death suit against Jim Sullivan. Good. Now, Jim, being the arrogant asshole, did that whole arrogant asshole thing where he was his own lawyer. Ugh. That's just like a sign. A psycho thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's, but, oh, okay. So he was his own lawyer. And this was like just horrible because like, can you imagine the McClintons knowing that this man killed their daughter and then they're having to sit there and be questioned by this motherfucker? Yeah. It's it's totally yeah. like a power move. Totally. Oh, it's so, he, it's so gross. He even had the nerve to like suggest that her father could have killed her for life insurance. <gasps> Okay, so Lita had taken out a $250,000 life insurance policy, but she changed it from Jim's name to her parents' name because she left Jim. Yeah. Like, I would do the same thing. I wouldn't want Jim to get my money if I died. I put it, she put it in her parents' name. But he was trying to say that he killed his own daughter. And then he did the other asshole thing where he just refused to testify. Mm-hmm. So her poor parents, man, like her poor, poor parents. This time, luckily, though, the jury did find him liable, and then they awarded the McClintons $4 million. But they knew that they would never get that money. He had already filed for bankruptcy. They right. like It wasn't about the money. They just wanted some justice, like some yeah. They wanted someone to say he he's – yeah. Yeah. <sighs> so – then in 10 years after Lita's murder, the Atlanta police receive a phone call from a woman named Belinda Trahan. Belinda claimed that she w- that her ex-boyfriend, Anthony Harwood, was the hitman that killed Lita and that it was in fact Jim Sullivan that hired him. Okay. So she knew Anthony's secret this whole time, but the only reason she hadn't come forward was because she was terrified of him. Yeah. But she said that he had been violent and dangerous and he was harassing her. So when she finally came clean about Anthony was and was just kind of like, arrest him, you know, just like get him yeah. off the streets and get him out of my life. And so she said that she was actually at the restaurant with Anthony and Jim Sullivan when Jim Sullivan handed Anthony an envelope with um, $12,500 cash. And that was supposed to be half of the $25,000 he was going to give him the other half once she was killed. Yeah. So when the police brought Anthony Hardwood in for questioning, he admitted everything. Well, almost everything. He admitted that he met Jim in 1986 when Anthony was hired as a mover to move furniture from 
his house in Macon to their home in Palm Beach. Uh So that's when they met. But when Jim asked him to murder Lita, he at first thought it was a joke, but then he realized he was serious. And he admitted that he had paid him to kill Lita and that there were three different men involved. So him and two other men. And he admitted that he was the person that called him from the hotel and he was the person that called him from the payphone. But he said that he was not the shooter. He was just the getaway driver. He said, yeah, he said the shooter was a guy named John the Barber. Uh Uh-huh. That's it. And the police were like, okay, yeah, John the Bobber, whatever. Just will you testify against Jim right. <laughs> Sure, 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 sure. Okay. Sure, sure. Like, so they knew that, you know, this guy probably did the shooting, but they just needed to get Jim Sullivan. Right. So they struck a plea deal with Anthony Harwood that he would plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter, but that he would have to testify against Jim Sullivan. So when the they finally have all of this, but when the police go to arrest Jim Sullivan, he had already fled the country. Because when he heard that, that Anthony Hardwood had been arrested, he was like, oh shit. Yeah. And then he This is uh, my he, house of cards is falling. Exactly. So first he went to Costa Rica, then he went to Panama, Venezuela, Malaysia, and then he went to Thailand. And this was over mm-hmm. five years that he was on the run in different different countries. And then in Thailand, he decided to settle and set up a new life under this name of Jim Sullivan. (laughs) Like, what the fuck, you idiot, you stupid idiot. Like, he was just so full of himself that he thought that, like, I can just use my real name. He bought a condo. He got a driver's license. He opened up a bank account all under the name of Jim Sullivan. Did he think there was, like, not an – like, can you not be extradited from Thailand or something? Well, I guess – so I think he thought that because – okay, so – then a little show came, America's Most Wanted came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that show. And um, <laughs> and Jim was featured on it because he yeah. was America's Most Wanted. He was on the run for, for murder and they knew that he was most likely in another country. So when the show aired, a tip then led the police right to his Thai condo right there on the beach. Right. And he was finally arrested on July 2nd, 2002. But I guess there was were some like – Issues with the extradition. Yeah. um, Because he wasn't able to be extradited until March of 2004. So it it was like a two-year process. Yeah. But when they finally went to court, Anthony Harwood testified that Jim Sullivan paid him to murder Lita Sullivan. And then he told the court that it was him and two other friends that they had actually attempted to murder her a few days earlier. But... Some they got kind of spooked and didn't feel that the, it, the opportunity was right, so they ended up backing off. And then they came a few days later and murdered Lita. They said that Anthony, driving the getaway car, then drove to a payphone and called Jim Sullivan and gave him the phrase "Merry Christmas," which was to be code for "The job has been done and Lita is dead." And now Jim Sullivan's lawyer or ex-lawyer, I should say, like their family lawyer um, testified that on the day that of the first attempted murder, that he had gotten a phone call. I guess he lived in the neighborhood near their townhome and he had gotten a phone call from Jim on the the morning that it it was supposed to be a 
like the first attempted murder. Yeah. Asked him like, have you heard any, have you heard anything going on in the neighborhood? Like, have you, is there, is, is everything cool with my condo or blah, blah, blah. I guess he was like looking for information to see if anybody had been murdered. Wow. He said that that conversation always um, felt strange to him. Yeah. But then it all. Of course, how would he know? Like I just, yeah. yeah, Until the information came out about the attempted first hit. The jury deliberated and then uh, after almost five hours, so 19 years after the murder, but five years, five hours after deliberating, they finally had their verdict and they found James Sullivan guilty of malice murder. Hell yeah. Um, Yeah. He was found guilty on all five counts, but while people fought for the death penalty, but because he wasn't the actual shooter, Mm -hmm. um, he did get life in prison. So he- is still serving out a sentence and he will have life in prison. Emory McClinton, her father, he said, we won the battle. He's not going to make a mockery of the courts anymore. It's over, Jim. Merry Christmas. You oh, that's a good line. Yeah. So, so, and then her parents also, because they had had that judgment for $4 million when he was found, um, it, it was supposed to have like a 20 year limitation or something, but they were able to petition to have it um, extended throughout his entire life because they, they believe that he has all these offshore bank accounts, um, you know, and, and so it's, they just want to make sure that they, and they don't want any of his money. It's not about the money, but they just want to make sure that he never sees a dime of it and his estate never sees a dime of it. Dang. What a crazy story. And what I just, I, I I kind of love the poetic justice that it was two women that brought these men down for killing this other woman, right? That it was Suki who came out and, and testified and then this girlfriend who came out and testified. Yeah. And because without them, they never would have been, they never would have gone down. Yeah. He just would have gotten away with everything. Yeah. I know. Um, Man. I know. He's ugh. I just hate him so much. I hate him so much. I, I told you him. he was a jerk. I told you. <laughs> you Your instincts did. were correct. <laughs> I told you I've become a very good detective. <laughs> you are. Um, all right. Well, listen. Yeah. I got a nice love story. Good. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a love story? I am. Our 100th love story? Yes. Okay. Uh, I got my information from The New Yorker by Ariel Levy, from The Guardian by Adam Gabbett, from Time Magazine by Eliza Gray, from The Advocate by Trudy Ring, and from Queer 40 by Andy Ryan and The Hollywood Reporter. (laughs) Nice. Sounds very well researched. (laughs) Yes. Very well researched. Okay. So, Edith Windsor, who everyone called Edie, was born in Philadelphia in 1929. Her parents were Russian immigrants who owned a candy and ice cream store, but they lost the store and their home during the Depression. Her family was Jewish, and she often got bullied at school. And Her mother actually taught her that if a boy called her a dirty Jew, she should pull his hair and run home. 
Yeah. But Edie was smart and fiery and cute. And in high school, she ended up dating a lot. And she says it was just what was expected of her, like at the time, to get married to a nice boy. And although she went to college at Temple University, which is in Philadelphia, she says she didn't study with a career in mind. She was like this voracious reader, but she knew the reason she was at college was to meet a husband. And looking back, Edie said that she had always had crushes on girls, but she didn't even understand homosexuality as a concept back then. Like she just, Mm -hmm. she didn't know gay people. She didn't even think it was, she didn't even know of it as a thing. Mm -hmm. So, but in college, just by chance, she was assigned to write a paper about the Kinsey report, which had just come out and which basically said that homosexuality was more prevalent than was previously thought. It was in writing about this report that she began to understand herself as possibly gay. And she, around this time, she had her first relationship with a woman, which she described as both wonderful and terrible. Uh, Terrible because she was terrified of living her life as a gay person. Homophobia was so prevalent in the 1950s that she convinced herself that she just wanted a normal life. So Mm -hmm. she did what was expected to her. She got married to a man. It was her older brother's best friend. And Edie wrote, he was exactly what most girls wanted. He was big, handsome, and strong, yet sweet. I think that if I had been straight, he had been the love of my life. But she knew he wasn't. She knew it wasn't right. So she got divorced in 1952, less than a year after her wedding day. Edie said, I told him the truth. I said, honey, you deserve a lot more. You deserve someone who thinks you're the best because you are, and I need something else. So after her divorce, Edie moved to New York And she took a job as a secretary while studying to get her master's at NYU. And so in 1958, she got a master's in mathematics and she landed a job at IBM as a computer programmer. And she worked her way up to a senior systems programmer, which is like the highest level of programmer, Mm -hmm. which was a job that very few women got at the time. She actually said that she worked like, so this is in the 1950s and she said the computer that she worked on took up a whole city block. Like oh, that's wow. how it was. So she wasn't out at work, but she started making lesbian friends. She actually said she called up an old friend and was like, do you know any lesbians? Can you tell me where they hang out? Cause she was just <laughs> like, I had no idea where to even find other lesbians. So no, I, you might've said, and I missed it. Um, did so should she tell her husband that she was gay and that uh or did she just say like you you deserve happiness like just not with me no i think she told him she told him the truth okay yeah just check yeah so Um, she came out she came out to him but she was not like out Out. yeah okay so her friend told her about a restaurant where she knew a lot of lesbians hung out and so she started going to this restaurant started making friends and she made her way into the underground lesbian scene in new york city and it was at this restaurant in 1963 that edie met thea spire so thea was born in amsterdam in 1931 to a wealthy family who was actually able to escape the Holocaust by fleeing to the United States before Nazis invaded the Netherlands. She was an accomplished violinist, but she had been expelled from Sarah Lawrence College after a security guard saw her and another woman kissing. Edie had gone on to get her PhD in clinical psychology, and she was like this self-assured woman. She had this striking face, but when Edie met her, she was actually on a date. But still, like the first night they met, 
They danced together. Edie said that Thea was the first woman she ever met who could lead. And Thea Mm -hmm. said, we just immediately fit. Our bodies fit. And Edie felt it too. She was like instantly smitten. But at the time, you know, Thea was on a date and she was just like intent on playing the field. So one weekend, Edie heard that Thea was going out to the Hamptons to stay with some mutual friends. And Edie called them and was like, I know this is... I know this is presumptuous, but please, can I come stay with you? And so while everyone else was out dancing, Edie waited up all night for Thea to arrive. And then she finally showed up the next afternoon. And Edie said to her, is your dance card full? And Thea said, it is now. And Edie says, I grabbed her. And then we made love all afternoon. So for a year, they basically dated very casually. Thea was from a wealthy family and was used to dating what Edie described as very wealthy, very white girls. And so it took Thea a while to realize that Edie, who was like this smart, passionate, she had her own career, that she was someone very special. But she did. And even though they knew that marriage was not a possibility. In 1967, two years after they started dating, Thea proposed to Edie. So that she couldn't, like, wouldn't be outed at work, Thea gave Edie a diamond pin circle instead of a ring. And it was, it was hard for Edie to keep such a huge part of her life secret. She, because she was such an outdooring, outgoing person, but at the time it seemed impossible for her to share her news. And the two were out to their family, but neither side of their family approved of their relationship. During the 1970s and 80s, the couple were like building their careers, Edie at IBM and Thea as a successful psychologist. They had a small apartment in Manhattan and a house in Southampton uh, where they host every year they hosted a big Memorial Day party. They also became activists in gay rights organizations. And in fact, in the early 1980s, Edie quit her job to become a full-time activist. And another reason she left her job was that in 1977, when she was just 45 years old, Thea was diagnosed with MS. And at first she only had to, she walked with a, a, you know, with a cane and then crutches and then finally a wheelchair. And it made it hard for the pair who had always been like world travelers to keep doing what they loved. But one thing Thea said that her disability didn't stop them from doing was the thing that at first brought them together, dancing. Thea said, when we were at parties or anything, anybody asks Edie to dance, she doesn't do it. Instead, Edie would sit on Thea's lap in her motorized wheelchair and they would zip around the dance floor. And although Edie became Thea's caregiver, she says that it wasn't a burden, it was a pleasure. And she also hates when people act as though she was some kind of martyr for taking care of her wife. She said, I was never her nurse. I'm her lover. I was doing things to make her comfortable. And that was with loving her and digging her. And she Mm -hmm. says that they maintained a sex life, something they were both incredibly open about and something that was really important to them as a couple. So over the years, there had been attempts in the courts to get gay marriage recognized, but they had all been shot down. In December of 1990, three couples filed applications for marriage licenses in in Hawaii, and they were denied, and then they sued the state. And so in 1993, there was a Supreme Court ruling that basically said, in order to, to keep denying licenses to gay couples, Hawaii would have to establish a compelling state interest to continue doing that. And so basically, this set the stage for the prospect, like not for gay marriage, but for the prospect of gay marriage. And it Mm -hmm. also created this huge backlash against it. So in 1996, to make sure that nobody could actually make gay marriage legal, 
Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, which defined marriage as between a man and a woman. Bill Clinton signed it into law. So still, gay marriage activists continued to fight for marriage equality. I know. And in 2004, Massachusetts was the first state to allow same-sex unions. And of course, individual states could allow marriage, but because of DOMA, other states didn't have to recognize the legal marriage of another state as they do with heterosexual couple, right? So you could get married legally in Massachusetts, but if you lived in Ohio, Ohio would be like, no, sorry, you're not married. So in 2007, Thea was told that she had a heart condition that meant she would only have one year left to live. (gasps) So, so this is, you know, she was living 30 years with MS. She was 75, but she basically was like, they were like, this is you, this is the end. So the next morning after she got her diagnosis, she woke up and looked at Edie and asked, do you still want to get married? And Edie, of course, said yes. So 40 years after Thea proposed, when they were 75 and 77, the two flew to Toronto, where all marriage was legal, to get married. Edie said, we had two best men and four best women, all of whom had assignments, because they would need to help Thea get off, on and off the plane to take apart and reassemble her her wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And Edie said, I couldn't even put a ring on Thea without someone holding her hand out, because at that time, she was not able to lift her hand herself. So Edie wore all white. Thea was in black. The ceremony was officiated by Canada's first openly gay judge, Justice Harvey Brownstone. And Edie said that despite their long-term commitment to one another, there was just something different about being married. They ran an announcement. They ran ran a wedding announcement in the New York Times. And Edie said literally hundreds of people from all stages of our life wrote to congratulate us. And all of her her old colleagues at IBM were like, we didn't even know. (laughs) We didn't know you were gay. Um, So even after 42 years together, Edie said that being married felt different. She said marriage is a magic word. Thea and Edie were on the steps of City Hall at a rally for marriage equality. And Edie said, Thea looks at her ring every day and thinks of herself as a member of a special species that can love and couple until death do them part. And sadly, in 2009, less than two years after their wedding day, Thea Spire passed away. She actually Mm. saw patients in her office until the day she dies. Edie described their their relationship as a love affair that just kept on and on and on. It really was. She said something like three weeks before Thea died, she said, Jesus, we're still in love, aren't we? So sweet. So Edie was brokenhearted when Thea died. And weeks before... Later, she actually was hospitalized with a heart attack, and then she was served with a three hundred and sixty-three thousand estate tax bill on property that Thea had left her in her will. So, in general, spouses are exempt from the estate tax. So, right, right. So, Edie, they had been married. Edie filed for a refund from the IRS. And I know was- this just because of Shawshank Redemption. Do you trust right. your wife? <laughs> Um, see, you know, you know, yeah, no. So, but it was, so they did, it was denied. And so, but because of DOMA, the federal government was like, we don't recognize your marriage because you can't be married because you're not a man and woman. So Edie said in the midst of my grief, I realized that the federal government was treating us as strangers and it meant paying a humongous estate tax and it meant selling a lot of stuff to do it. And it wasn't easy. I live on a fixed income and it wasn't easy. So Edie felt as though she was being taxed for being gay. 
So she decided to sue. And Edie turned to the gay rights organizations that she had been a longtime supporter of and an activist for, and she didn't get the response she had hoped for. They basically were like, sorry, we don't think you're like the best defendant to challenge this law. So we just don't want to do it. But then this gay rights lawyer named Roberta Kaplan heard about Edie's case and decided to take it. And there was a lot of disagreement within the legal community about whether this was the right case to challenge DOMA, because, you know, once a case gets to the Supreme Court, if it loses, it could set a precedent for years to come. But then as cases, as Edie's case wove through the court system, something else happened. In 2011, the Obama administration determined that sexual orientation could be a classification for discrimination, just like race or gender is. And they decided that they would not defend DOMA in Edie's case at the Supreme Court. So in June 2012, the Southern District of New York ruled in Edie's favor, and then the ruling was upheld by the Court of Appeals in October. And two months months later, the Supreme Court announced that it would hear Edie's case. On June 26, 2013, lawyer Roberta Captain and her wife Rachel and Edie were all sitting at Roberta's dining room table when they got the news. The Supreme Court had declared that the Defense Against Marriage Act was unconstitutional. And according to the New Yorker, there was silence. Somebody screamed. Rachel Levine started sobbing. Everything is going to be different for Jacob, she said of their son. Mm. And Edie simply said, I want to go to Stonewall right now. So they all got in the car. On the way there, Edie got a call from President Obama telling her that he had been moved by her story. So I love you. I know. And she was like, I think it was your coming out and saying that this law wasn't, you know, that you wouldn't defend this law is what made all the difference. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's really difficult to overstate like the practical benefits to every gay American following Edie's victory in the Supreme Court. So after the court decision, gay couples could file joint tax returns. They could get access to veterans and social security benefits. They could hold on to their homes when their spouses died and get green cards for their foreign husbands and wives. And for Mm -hmm. many couples, like especially those with like children and those without means, these were like real benefits and protections, like not just a symbol. And of course, Edie's case paved the way for the legalization of gay marriage in 2015. And Mm. Edie Windsor, as you can imagine, became an icon in the gay rights movement. Anthony Romero, who is the executive director of the ACLU, said, one simply cannot write the history of the gay rights movement without reserving immense credit and gratitude for Edie Windsor. So after the decision, Edie continued to be an activist for human rights, and that is how, in 2015, she met Judith Kaysen, who was also an activist. And Judith had seen Edie at numerous LGBT rights events and had tried to flirt with her without getting any results, but Edie (laughs) finally agreed to go on a date to a Hanukkah party hosted by her attorney in the DOMA case, Roberta Kaplan, and a romance blossomed. And Edie said, I was empty. And then this woman walked into my life. I didn't think it would happen again. And it did. I lived with a spectacular woman for 40 years. And now I live with another one. It didn't occur to me that I would find such a person in my life. It didn't occur to me that I would have another such love in my life. The two were married in October of 2016 at New York City Hall. So after a beautiful year of life together at age 88, Edie Windsor died. Her wife 
Judith said, I lost my beloved spouse, Edie, and the world lost a tiny but tough-as-nails fighter for freedom, justice, and equality. Edie was a light of my life. She will always be the light for the LGBTQ community, which she loves so much and which loved her right back. So to ensure her legacy, Judith actually helped get Edie's memoir published after her death in 2017. It's called A Wild and Precious Life, a Memoir. So you can buy that anywhere. You can also learn more about Edie and her life with Thea in a documentary that was made about their lives right before Thea's death in 2009 called Edie and Thea, A Very Long Engagement. Oh, I love that story. Yeah. I hope I didn't write it. Oh, you did a great job. Good. That was like the perfect story for our 100th episode. You know, I feel like we really nailed this 100th episode. What do you guys think? All right. So should we do our 100th? Things that are dumb, things that are love, that we love. Let's do it. So for something dumb, I don't really have anything that dumb. I mean, I'm like, like I'm up and I'm down. I'm like, I'm excited to start a new job and a new chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, but I'm also like, I guess dumb just because like I'm still like nervous. I hope I you know made the right choice. It's hard yeah. to make big changes, but I'm I look forward to it. Um, it's going to be great. I, um, also what's dumb is that for you guys, (laughs) we're going to take a month (laughs) off. So sorry. We'll be back though. Um, and it'll, uh, we promise to have some real, real good stuff with, for you guys in June. Yeah. Um, I think as Jen, as Jen called it, um, last week, banging content. (laughs) Some bang, banging content. Yep. Um, for something that I love, I love, I'm excited. I love that we're in our 100th episode. I'm excited to go celebrate tonight. I'm excited to celebrate a new job. I'm excited to start a new job. I also want to say one other thing that I love is um, I was listening to it this morning before I ran into my boss looking like a garbage person. Um, <laughs> I So you guys know, I, I've ta- I, I feel like I talk about this podcast on, this epi- on our podcast more than I talk about our own podcast, but I love Housewives. I love the podcast Bitch Sesh. I love yeah. it. Um, and Casey Wilson, who is the one of the hosts of um, Bitch Sesh, and she's a comedian. I'm sure you guys know her from Saturday Night Live and all the things. Um, but she – and I'm she's also endings, on Black – Yeah, Happy Endings, Black Monday, which is a great fucking show. Janelle James, who's one of my favorite comedians, is on that show as well. But she wrote a book – uh, it's uh, called The Wreckage of My Presence, and yeah. it just came out. Have and, you read um, it? So I'm listening to it on, on – I'm reading with my ears uh-huh. on Audible, <laughs> and I was listening to it this morning, um, and I was dying laughing. Like, So I'm only like an hour into it, but already – it's so fucking good. And she's such a – she's so funny. And the way that she reads I, – I like I would – reading is great. Reading is good for you. <laughs> but this is one of those books where it's like I recommend listening to her read it because she's so funny. Yeah. What's dumb was that I was looking like a fucking fool walking around <laughs> laughing at myself. Right. Um, but I super recommend this book. Um, it's – I'm so excited to listen to the rest of it because I'm already like all in. I'm all in and I just want this podcast to end so I can go listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Um, but um definitely check it out so what about you so i think the dumb thing is is that this weekend is mother's day which is not dumb 
It's, yeah. it's something I love. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to you, yes. Jen. Happy Mother's they, Day to all the mothers out there. Yeah. You're fucking killing it in this crazy year. That is something to be proud of. Um, but it's, you know, it's just sad. It's yeah, sad. To, it's a hard day. It's, it's a hard day, which I'm like trying to, you know, it's a lot of conflicting emotions of, you know, yeah. wanting to be like, yeah, I'm a mom and I want to celebrate that. And then also being like, oh, that's my mom. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. And I've been thinking about my mom a lot lately. And um, so anybody else who has lost their mom, just know that, uh, or you don't have a good relationship with mom or anything where this day is hard when it's supposed to, you know, be flowers and chocolates and brunch. Um, Yeah. I'm thinking of you. I'm thinking of you guys. The thing that I love is that it's our 100th episode. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's just been such a joy to do this with you, Jen. Same, Sally. Like, I'm really super proud of us. And I love what, you know, I love what we've done. I love what we've done here. (laughs) (laughs) I like what you're doing here. I like where we're going. Uh, No, same. I'm like, I'm, I, yeah. I'm so happy to be doing this with you. And I can't wait to clink. Glasses tonight when we cheers. Yes. To I'm very excited. 100 episode. Thank you guys, because obviously without you, we would have no podcast. And or actually, we could still do it without them, but we're, we appreciate your being there and listening yes. to us and uh, engaging and just being kind of the best, kind of the best yeah. listeners. I hope that you guys have a great break. Um, we'll probably put we'll put something up in the feed. So if you want to listen to old episodes, that's great. If not, we'll be back in a month with fresh, shiny content. In the meantime, you can find us on all the social media at Dumb Love Podcast. You can email us if you want. If you miss us while we're gone, just email us at dumblovepod at gmail.com. Uh, find it, you know, go rate and review. Tell a friend. Listen to some back episodes while we're gone. We would love that. Do it. We dare you. Um, (laughs) thank you guys so much for everything thank you for a hundred episodes we love you so much we dumb love you so much and um you so much and get out there this whole month every day and do something dumb for love dumb 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 dumb